I'm looking forward to the service today. Today I'm going to talk about community. If you've been here, just to remind you, uh, this whole year we're talking about different, three different subjects. We're either talking about spiritual formation or spiritual gifts or spiritual conflict. Today we're talking about community, which is part of spiritual formation. Community is all about growing intentionally with other people to become more like Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm excited to talk about community. But before I talk about community, I want to talk to you a little bit about a sociological term. So to remind you, sociology is all about studying people, studying cultures, studying institutions to try to understand human behavior. And once you have an idea of the human behavior, you label it so we have a little handle to put on it. So today I want to bring up one word that describes our culture. It's a word that probably some of you have heard, and if you've not heard this week, when I tell you this word that describes culture, you'll probably quickly be able to define it just because it's influenced culture so much. And the word I want to bring up this morning is McDonaldization. That's McDonald's as in the restaurant, McDonaldization. McDonaldization is a Mick word, according to sociology George Ritzer. In his 1993 book, he wrote a book called The McDonaldization of Society. And the whole book is about how McDonald's has influenced our culture, it's influenced our, our cities, it's influenced our schools, it's influenced about every segment of society. And so he wrote this whole book to kind of analyze and to, decide, and, and to help us understand how did that happen? Because usually when something like a McDonald's influences culture, it just naturally happens. It's not like any of us stood up and said, yep, I adopt that culture. I want that to influence uh, you know, my home or my restaurant or my school. It just sort of naturally happens over time. So in George's book, he talked about four different characteristics of McDonald's that have influenced our culture way more than probably any of us have understood. The first thing that McDonald's has influenced is the whole idea of efficiency. That is like the whole goal of McDonald's, to make everything incredibly efficient. How can we do it, and how can we do it faster? How can we get more cars through the drive-thru? How can we get more people in the restaurant and out of the restaurant? Number one goal is efficiency. The number two characteristic of McDonald's is calculatability. How can you calculate things? Everything about McDonald's comes through the idea we got to focus on what can be counted. Let's count the hamburgers. Let's count the french fries. Let's count the cars in the drive-thru. Let's count how much time it takes to get to the drive-thru. Let's count when do people come back to McDonald's. You focus on things that you can tangibly count. Sometimes they'll ignore things that it's hard to count like what is a person's feeling or what's the impression? Sometimes you want to count that, but that's a little bit more difficult. So McDonald's and the fast food industry, they like to focus on what you can definitely count. So you take efficiency and then you count it. So why? So you can predict what is going to happen and you can start standardization. So the first thing is efficiency. Second thing is you can count. And then the third thing is predictability and standardization. You kind of go to one McDonald's, they look like every other McDonald's. You look at a McDonald's employee, the one employee that does something on one of McDonald's, there's the exact same thing in the other McDonald's. You routinize schedules, you routinize routines, so everything flows automatically based on prediction. You know when the cars are going to come, when they're not going to come, when people are going to be hungry, what's the weather, what's that going to influence? And then the final characteristic of the McDonald's of fast food culture is control. 
you can count, you can predict, you can start standardization, so you can kind of control the whole operation. Most McDonald's employees don't have a lot of creativity in their job. They don't go there and say, I'm going to make a Big Mac this way today. No, that's been pretty routinized in the schedule, what they're going to do. And that's the whole culture of McDonald's. You get it to the point where you're so efficient, everything's predictable, that basically a lot of the employees at McDonald's, they look a little bit more like robots than human beings that are there to be really creative. Now, there's nothing wrong with McDonald's doing it that way. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can easily see how that has become part of our culture, where we're looking, how can we make something faster? How can we be a little bit more efficient? And how can we kind of control the outcomes? So in this whole book, it was about how has that influenced our culture? So about five or six years ago, Christopher Smith, another famous sociologist, he wrote a book on how the McDonaldization has influenced the church. So he called his book Slow Church. In contrast to the fast church culture that the McDonaldization has done in our churches. When you think about it, a lot of churches kind of try to follow the McDonald's culture. How can we be faster? How can we be quicker? How can we be more efficient? And sometimes that's a good goal. You want a person to follow a standardized path of a spiritual formation. That's good. There's nothing wrong with it. But sometimes you like to remove the unpredictability so you can kind of control the process. And that doesn't happen. So the whole book about slow church is how do you slow down? How do you unhurry? And how do you follow the Holy Spirit? If you're with us on Wednesday night, we talked about how the Celtic people referred to the Holy Spirit as the wild goose. That sounds a little sacrilegious to say the wild goose, but the, Cel the, the Celtic people referred to the Holy Spirit as a wild goose. Why? Because sometimes following the Holy Spirit looks like a wild goose ride. Sometimes you have no idea where you're going. You have no idea where he's going to lead you, how he's going to lead you, what the outcomes are going to be, but you go along with it because that's part of the slow church culture where you just trust in the Lord to lead you and to guide you and to direct you. I like that idea. I like slow church. I like unpredictability. I like the wild goose. But to be honest with you, there's times I would like it to be a little bit more efficient. I would like to get through the process a little quicker. But sometimes in the act of surrender, it doesn't seem to be an option. I'll tell you when this pattern of McDonaldization that had an influence on me, when it became the most evident in my life, was about a year and a half ago after we moved in this building. And the pastor of the Sudanese church, Zachariah, he said to me one day, he said, you know, there's a lot of yard work to do here. So how about if you get some of your guys and I'll get some of my guys, we'll meet here on a Saturday morning from about 10 o'clock until noon and we'll do a bunch of yard work. So great, I find out what they wanted to have done. So I gathered 10 of the guys from Lake Effect Church. They got here, I'm assigned, I assigned tasks. Okay, you guys go over there, you two do this raking, you do over here. And we had a whole little crew out here working like little beavers. When they got here, you go there, you go there. The Sudanese showed up and they did things a little bit differently. They showed up and they gathered under the tree over there to visit for a while. They hung out for a while. They enjoyed each other for a while. I think they're like, yeah, this is a good idea. Get those lake effect guys here. They do all the work. And then after a while, they came out from under the tree, but they would split up. Some of them went over and they helped Chad under the poison ivy tree. You know, they watched Chad pull poison, poison ivy. Remember that? Yeah, the bad idea. 
And then the other Sudanese guys would go hang out with me or they hang out with somebody else. And after a while, you know, they would just kind of wander around and work with different people. But after two hours, the Lake Effect guys, they were done with their tasks. They were putting everything in their car. They're ready to go home on the dot at noon. And the Sudanese are kind of looking at us like, why are you leaving? They went back under the tree to hang out. So they called me over and said, why are you leaving? It's lunchtime now. I'm like, what we said would be till noon. We're done. They're like, well, we haven't had lunch yet. I'm like, sorry, we said we'd be done that dude. So I left and everybody else left. I'm on the expressway driving home and I'm thinking, why did I leave? I don't have to be home at 1230. There's nothing for me to do in the next couple hours. I could have stayed and have lunch, but I'm so busy and I've calculated my time, calculated my schedule to the point that I kind of ruled out even hanging out with the Sudanese, even having some community with them. And I look over, I look at the reflection of the Sudanese church and how much community is more important to them than getting a task done. And it's beautiful. Because I drove in this parking lot a few weeks ago and I looked and I thought, you know, all these weeds grew up again. It's not like we pulled them once and they're done forever. They keep growing up. But you know what? The Sudanese guys are still together every week. Still hanging out together. I'll tell you, if I do a yard day again, you got to come because you know what they like to do when you do a yard day? I'm all worried about the shovels and the equipment and the bark. They're worried about the meat. What meat are we going to put on the grill so we can eat when we're done? I mean, that's a little bit different of the culture. So you see so easily how little routinization of schedules and tasks to get done, how much it so drives us as an American people. And I think we got to be aware of that. Because what is more important than pulling a weeds or developing community? So you might wonder, why am I talking about this today? Why am I bringing up community? Well, first of all, we need to talk about community. That is the life force of the church. But also we need to talk about church. I want to talk a little bit more about Lake Effect Church and our future. I'm excited for the future. I think God has good things in our future. But at the same time, it's been a difficult road, a difficult path. I don't think it takes much calculatability to learn, to, to look and count. It would not be hard if you're a McDonald's person to count the number of people that are here or the number of people watching online. And to be honest, that doesn't really intimidate me anymore. Now, there's a while that intimidated me like, whoa, that number is not good to count because that's a reflection of me or something I'm doing wrong. That doesn't bother any, me anymore. A little bit. But it really doesn't. Because if you look at the biblical definition of a church, what is it? Two or three people gathered in the name of Jesus. He got a church. That's a little bit pressure taken off. A church isn't formed upon size. But what influences a church more is community, is missions. There's actually three parts to church. Number one, is it Jesus-centered? Number two, is there community? And number three is their missions. That's the goal of church. You have to have those three elements and then wrap in that, do some communion and do some sacraments, and you have a church. So I'm bringing that up because I want in the next couple months or so that we begin to talk as a community of how do we do church better and how do we do church differently. Because a decrease in size is not just a lake effect church thing. This is happening of churches across the globe. I was listening to Andy Crouch the other day, a famous church growth expert man. He said, across the board, megachurches have decreased in attendance 50% over the last two years. The average megachurch has decreased 50%. A lot of churches have been continuing to, to have to close because of lack of people coming. 
I was listening to a pastor that I listened to a lot of his podcasts in Canada, large mega church of 12,000 people. They've been having to cancel Sunday school because of decrease in volunteers. Not only people decrease coming, but there's a decrease in volunteers. They're not doing Sunday school. Or they have Sunday school first come, first serve, or nurseries first come, first serve. So you're seeing this trend across the board in churches, and I can't say I would blame it on COVID. I don't think COVID has caused a decrease in church attendance. What I think has happened is that COVID has accelerated the rate of people declining of going to churches. We've seen a decline in churches since the 1960s, and I think what COVID did is they just pushed it a little faster. So I think churches are all standing here, no different than we are saying, what do we need to do differently? How do we need to do things different? Because our goal, our role as a church is to influence culture and to attract people to church. How do we do church different that we would attract people, but also we attract people missionally? How do we live an incarnational life that we represent Christ to the people around us that they would be attracted to be part participants in a church and in a community? So that's why I'm bringing this up, because I want us to have open dialogues of what do we think we should do next? I mean, for, I'll give you an example of what I've been thinking and I've been sharing with some people. I keep wondering, why do we meet 50 times a week? I mean, why do we meet 52 Sundays a year? There's no rule book that says you have to meet every single Sunday. What would church culture look like if we said, let's only meet 40 times a year? And let's take one Sunday a month where we say, you know what, we're not going to meet in this building. We're going to meet somewhere in our community and we're going to bless somebody in our community. Or we're going to bless a ministry. Or we're going to bless a, 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 an operation. Or maybe we'll go to the beach together and build community. What would church look like if we said, let's focus a little bit more on community and a little bit more on missions instead of always just focusing on being in this building together? So I want us to think creatively about those ideas. I'm also said, what if we change the name of the church? What if we did something radical like that? What could we do as a people that we would be better reflections of who Christ is and what Christ has called us to do? I think some of the best ways to understand what we're called to do is to go to the beginning of the Gospels when you see where Jesus called his disciples for the first time. You read in the book of Matthew, Matthew 4, verse 18. It says, One day... As Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they had fished for a living. Jesus called them out, come follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once, and they followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two older brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called for them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving their boat and their father behind. See, the very first invitation that Jesus had to his followers was, come follow me. That's code word for come be my apprentice. Come let me disciple you. See, what's remarkable is that they immediately dropped their nets and they ran. Now, why did they do that? Some people say, well, Jesus is God. They did it because of that. But we have to remember Jesus was just a man. He was a man that gave up his divinity and he was operating in the power of the Holy Spirit to be in him. See, the reason that they were willing to follow Jesus immediately is because they listened to Jesus. They had seen him around town. They had known about his reputation. They had listened to his words at times. So when Jesus said to them, follow me, they were excited to follow Jesus. 
And when Jesus said to them, come, let me teach you how to fish for men, they knew the deeper meaning of that. See, to learn how to fish for men, that, that is a play on words. You know, you fish for fish, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. That's a little bit of a play on words, but that's also an idiom that was used in the first century to mean, come follow me and I'm going to transform you so much that you're going to gain so much wisdom that people are going to want to listen to what you have to say. See, what Jesus was saying to those early followers is, you come follow me and I'm going to make you like me. You're going to speak with the same wisdom and authority that I have because you're going to be so influenced by me. So Jesus calls these followers to come into a community with him. You notice he didn't just call one disciple at a time, but he called a group of people to come together to be his disciples. He called people in community. He called people in community to live together, to, to do life together, to be with each other. He didn't say, okay, you want to be my disciples? You know what? Show up at school at nine in the morning. We'll have class until noon, and then he can go home. He said, no, y'all going to be in community together with me because I'm going to teach you in a, in, in a setting of community. And then you get to Matthew chapter 8. And Jesus is going to say some things that you're a little surprised at. First, Jesus is gathering a bunch of disciples. And then in Matthew 8, verse 18, it says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. So here on one side of the lake, Jesus is gathering all these disciples. He has many disciples. He says, okay, now we're going to cross over the lake. We're going to cross the lake. Then one of the teachers of the law said, Teacher, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. He stands up and says, yeah, I'm going to go with you. And then Jesus, in verse 20, starts to talk people out of following him. He's saying, I want you all to consider the cost of what you're going to be doing. He said, foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Basically, Jesus said to the disciples, I'm homeless. You're going to be following a homeless man. I'm not going to guarantee to you that we're going to be staying in the Hyatt this evening. I'm not guaranteeing you where our next meal is coming from. You're basically following me, and I'm not really sure where exactly we're going to go because we're on a wild goose chase right now. The Holy Spirit's going to give us enough information to go. We're going to cross the lake. Then when we get to the other side of the lake, then we'll figure out what we're going to do from that point on. And that's Jesus' invitation. Not a very predictable plan to follow. Not a good McDonald's plan, but kind of a wild goose chase. So one of the disciples in verse 21 steps forward and says, oh, oh, yeah, uh, I got to go home and bury my dad. That's a good excuse. And then you think Jesus kind of is harsh because he says, nope, you follow me now. You can't go home and bury your dad. You kind of look at it like, Jesus, that's kind of, the guy's dad died, you know, come on, let him go home. See, I don't think what we realize here, that man's dad isn't dead yet. His father never died. What that guy was saying is, I don't want to follow you yet. I'm going to go home and I'm going to keep working for my father for the next several years. And then someday after he dies and then my inheritance is divided up in the family, then I'll follow you. But I don't really want to do it right now. That sounds a little inconvenient for me to actually give up the life I have right now and to cross over that lake and act like a homeless person. I, I don't want to do that right now. Instead, I'm going to stay on this side of the lake, and I'm going to continue my life. And then, you know, maybe when I'm older, 
I get a little bit older and my dad's older and he dies and we sell the farm off and I get my money. Then I'll come follow you. See, that's what that man was saying. He's saying, I have an excuse. But see, you know what I love about this story? It tells you in verse 21 what the guy said of, no, I'm going to go home first. But it never tells you, did the guy change his mind? It never tells you if the guy said he went to the corner and he thought about it for a while and said, no, that's stupid. Okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. You don't know what he's going to do. And in the Bible, sometimes that happens where you intentionally, you don't know what's going to happen. Think of the prodigal son story. The older brother, you know, at the end, he disputes with his father and you you don't know how it ends. That's, I think that intentionally happens because it causes us to go in the place of the person in the scripture and say, how would I respond? How would I respond in that situation? Am I like the older brother? Or am I like the disciple that says, no, nah, I'll wait 30 years to follow? It's causing us to ask ourselves the question, where are we in the story? It's causing us to say, what excuse have we used to not following Jesus 100%? And I think that's something that we have to sit with. Is there anything that's holding us back from crossing the lake with Jesus? Is there anything that's giving us an excuse to say, I'll do it later? That's what this story's driving at. What excuse are you using from jumping in the lake with Jesus? It's a metaphor weekend. We're following a wild goose and we're jumping into a lake. That's the calling of us. Tell people, what'd you do on 4th of July? I chased a goose and I jumped into a lake. Bingo, you're a follower of Jesus. That's what we do at Lake Effect. We jump in. We follow gooses. But I want to tell you something, too. You know, when Jesus called this man to give up things, there's a principle in Scripture, you never can give up more than what Jesus would give you in return. You can never say, oh, I gave up something and I, and, and I sacrificed so much. You can't do that because Jesus is always going to bless you so much more than you could ever give up. So you go to Mark 10. Mark 10 is a beautiful passage, especially for people that are not married. I think a lot of people find comfort in Mark 10. Mark 10 is very comforting for a lot of my single friends. It's a lot of comfort for a lot of my friends that are celibate and they don't want to be celibate because the promise in Mark 10, verse 29 to 30. Listen to what Jesus says I'll do for you. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that anyone, this might be emotional, anyone who's given up houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mother, children and property along with the persecution and in the world to come the person will have everlasting life. That's an incredible promise that he says you will receive a hundred times as much in the life you're living now. In eternity, it says you'll also get eternal life. But that's your promise from Jesus. Whatever you give up, you're going to get back a hundred times more. Now, that doesn't mean if you give up your house, you're going to get a hundred houses tomorrow. What that means is you're going to have a bigger community. That means the houses that you're going to inherit, that means homes that you're going to be welcome into. That's part of community that you're welcome into other people's homes. That other brothers and sisters, that that means other people that you're going to have deeper relationships with. This is Jesus' promise. Whatever you give up for my sake, I'm going to give it up to you more in community. 
That the community that you're going to inherit is going to be bigger than what would ever happen on your own. See, this is a promise of Jesus, but this promise is also a directive for churches. See, part of the church's calling is to fulfill this promise that we would become a community for other people who have given up in order to follow Jesus. That's what churches are called to do. We are called to fulfill this promise. See, Jesus blesses us with the fulfillment of the promise, but this is the church's responsibility over here. We need to be a place for the lonely and the vulnerable and the marginalized to feel welcomed and to loved and to be included and to have a family, to be welcomed into each other's houses. That's why we have the gift of hospitality, so we can welcome people into our houses, so we can be part of Jesus, fulfilling his promises for people, that Jesus would use us to fulfill this promise. That's what we're called to do. This is what a church needs to look like. Thank you, Lori. A church needs to look like Mark 10, verse 29 and 30. So let's go back to Jesus' disciples. Look back at this community. Jesus calls 12 guys together and says, you're going to live together, you're going to eat together, you're going to be together, so you can be with me to become like me to do the things that I want to do. Okay, like that's good, Jesus. You pull this nice little group of people together. But Jesus pulls a weird bunch of people together. See, a lot of times about community, what holds us back is we say, yeah, I went there, but you know, I didn't, I didn't feel that connection to that group. I didn't feel that instant connection, so I don't know if I really want to be part of that group. And so we, we hang back because we're looking for that instant chemistry. Now, yeah, chemistry is really important for spouses and to have deep friendships with people. I don't know if you know, C.S. Lewis said one time that most long-term deep friendships are, are formed by a you too moment. Not the band, but you too. Like, oh, you too have experienced that. Oh, you went through that? You too. A lot of times those things that we have in common help draw us together in deeper community. But we shouldn't say if we don't have that instant chemistry, instant connection, then we're not really part of that community. Because I want you to look at the 12 people that Jesus called. That is not natural chemistry in that group at all. He called Jewish people. He called the tax collector to be part of that group. He taught a zealot to be part of that group. Could you imagine what mornings look like at breakfast the first couple weeks? Those 12 guys together? That would be like having Ben Shapiro and Bernie Sanders part of your group. And throwing Nancy Pelosi. Then throwing Donald Trump. Could you, I mean, that is about as radical of a group Jesus called. There wasn't natural chemistry in that group. There wasn't, oh, hey, brother, yeah, high five, glad you're here. No, there's like, you're here? Really? I got to put up with Bernie? You know? At least Ben Shapiro would have come prepared as a little hat on. But anyway, I mean, that is the kind of weird little group that Jesus formed together. Jesus made community out of these people. Some of these people had nothing in common, probably hated each other. But Jesus' eyes are them and says, I'm going to make you into a community. That's a powerful little strategy that Jesus had. See, when Jesus called these 12 disciples, it had nothing to do with skill. It had nothing to do with ability. 
It didn't have to do with a track record. It had to do with desire. That's the only thing that was required to be one of Jesus' disciples. Do you have a desire to be with Jesus, to become like him, to do the things that he did? That's all Jesus needed. Nobody had to have any special abilities or skills. You just had to have the desire to be there. And once Jesus had your desire, look what he did. He transformed these men into incredible men. But he transformed them in the context of community. They were all together when Jesus was doing this work in each of them. It's not like he would just have one-on-ones over here. They were together as a group. I love this quote by Christian Smith, the author of Slow Growth. I think it's in your notes. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we don't grow as much at all. It's in the context of community that Jesus is going to deliver us from two of our biggest problems that we have in our life. See, I think our two biggest problems in our life is number one, trust, and number two, fear. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, how did Satan tempt Adam and Eve? with fear and trust issues. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. Adam and Eve, they came from perfect families, perfect parents. They didn't have like family of origin trauma. But yet they got snickered. How did the enemy do it? He did it with fear and he did it with trust. What did he do to them? He said, did God really say that? He got Adam and Eve to believe that God was holding out on them. That if they followed what God had told them, that they would be missing something. So he tricked them into thinking that God wasn't good enough, that God wasn't faithful, that God wouldn't provide for them. He got them not to trust God. He got them to fear that they're going to miss something in their life. Christian Smith has another good quote. says, the primary roots of our rebellion are distrust and fear. We don't trust that God is faithful. Like Adam and Eve, we wonder if God is really in charge, if we will be taken care of, or if we are being tricked. When God holds something back, we're tempted to believe God is trying to hold us back. We need to be set free from fear and trust. And God did that to James and John. You remember I just read to you about how James and John, the early disciples, quick, dropped everything, followed Jesus. Then you get to Mark 10, and it says, James and John, the son of Zebedee, came over and they said to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do us a favor. And Jesus is like, sure, guys, what do you want? And they said, when we sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. You're like, you got to be kidding me. You know, if you read in the book of Matthew, they tell you that their mother went to Jesus and asked for this. Mark's a little bit nicer. He's trying to cover these guys. What's more embarrassing? You're a disciple of Jesus and your mom shows up one day. By the way... Here these young men come to Jesus, and what are they worried about? They're worried about position. They're worried about power. They're having trust issues right now. Will we be recognized? 
Will we get out of this what we really want? They're fearful because they think, what if we, what if we missing out? So we're going to get to Jesus before these other guys get to him. And we're going to say, hey, one request. Make us, make us the really good ones. Make us, give us the most power. It's kind of strange to think that. I mean, Jesus said, but I think we all do that a little bit. We're all kind of worried. Will we be significant? Are we going to miss out on something? Is Jesus really in control or somebody else going to get what I'm supposed to get? And you kind of worry about that a lot. I think that's part of our McDonaldization too. We're worried like, am I going to make the progress or somebody else going to beat me to it? But see, what's so interesting is the verses that come after this. After the, the you know, after, uh, then it goes into the story of um, the blind man, Bartimaeus. It says, when they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left the town, large crowds followed him. A blind man named Bartimaeus was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard of Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So the disciples called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and he came to Jesus. So Jesus says to Bartimaeus the same question he asked the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? My rabbi, the blind man, said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus down to the road. Jesus said, what do you want? See, it seems kind of a rude question. I mean, obviously, look, the guy's blind. He kind of needs to see. But see, I think Jesus used that as a teaching moment to his disciples. To ask them the question, what do you really want? Why are you really following me? It's interesting that the blind man, who probably didn't have much access to community care or government support, who's probably just kind of homeless, living on his own on the street, was the one who said, what does he want? He wanted mercy. He wanted mercy. It's kind of interesting that Jesus would put these parables back to each other. It's kind of showing that the man who was the most desperate the blind man who's the most desperate was the one who figured out that mercy was better than anything else. See, when you read these stories side by side, you see the irony of these two. That sometimes it is in our desperation that we understand what we truly want from Jesus. That's a beautiful part of the story is to see that this blind man who had to be led around by his friends was the one who ended up teaching Jesus' the disciples what they really wanted. But that is a question for all of us of what do you want Jesus to do for you? Why are you following Jesus? Are you holding anything back? See, I want us to close today by taking communion. And if you're at home watching online, you came later, I, I want to encourage you to participate in communion with us as well. You can run to your kitchen, grab a little water, a little juice or something, just participate with us. Don't just think, well, I'm at home, I don't have to do this. I think this is important to participate, even if you're pretending to drink. Because see, communion is more, it, it is part of remembering what Jesus has done for us. But communion is also a big part of saying, yes, I'm all in. 
It's this reminder that we are followers of Jesus. It's this opportunity to say, again, us to say, yes, I'm following you, Jesus. Yes, I'll cross over that lake. It's an opportunity to say, I want, I want to put my excuses down. It's our opportunity to say, I, I, I want to trust you. I want my fear to go away. Today is an opportunity to drink this cup together and say, yes, I'm all in. I'm all in, Jesus. I'm done with my excuses. I'm done with my fear. I'm done with my trust. I want to be all in. That is what I want us to do today when we drink this cup. I want it to be a proclamation that we're all in. That we're jumping in the lake. That we're following the goose. Because I'll tell you what Jesus wants to do for us. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, 12 and 13. This is a picture of what God wants to do for us. It's a prophetic scripture in the Old Testament that talked about the people of Israel when they came out of exile. And this was a promise of the restoration that God would do for them. It says, so you will leave your exile with joy and be led home wrapped in peace. The mountains and the hills in front of you will burst into singing and the trees of the field will applaud. That's the reception Jesus has for us. I want to wrap you in peace. And the hall of creation is going to celebrate that you're following me. All of creation is celebrating you right now. And then it says cypress trees will flourish where there were only thorns and myrtle trees instead of nettles. These will stand as a testimony to Yahweh's renown, everlasting sign that will not be cut off. That's what Jesus, that's a picture of what Jesus wants to do for us. He wants to make us into cypress trees. If you don't know much about cypress trees, they're amazing trees. In North America, we talk a lot about sequoias and redwood trees. Cypress trees are more in the Middle East, and they're in the same family. Sequoias and redwoods and cypress are all in the same family. And what these trees are known for is their gigantic size. If you go to the Northern California in the sequoia forest, there's the redwood trees. Redwood trees grow about 400 feet tall. Amway Grand Plaza Hotel, that's about 300 feet tall. So imagine another 100 feet above Amway Grand Plaza. Uh, uh, the tree, uh, the redwood tree is about 37 stories high. You think about Amway Grand Plaza, 29 stories. Think another 10-story building. That's how tall these redwood trees are. Some of the most powerful trees in all the world. But you know what's crazy about redwood trees? Their roots go down just a little bit. Their roots go as deep as six feet. That's it. That's not that impressive for a big tree, but their roots go out far and wide. Their root system goes about a hundred feet out, but they're, most of the roots are on top of the ground or just a little bit below the ground. It doesn't seem like a really good design for a tree. And the truth is a redwood tree could blow over really easily in wind if it's not in a forest of trees. If a redwood tree is on its own, all 400 feet tall, it's going to blow over instantly. But the reason that a, the redwood trees don't fall over is for one reason. It's called the grove effect. The grove effect. See, redwood trees grow in groves. 
They grow in a company of trees. They grow in a forest of trees. That's how they survive. That's how they get 400 feet. Because when one redwood tree is going to blow over, the roots are attached to another redwood tree that's going to hold it up. The redwood trees get to 400 feet tall because of the community that they are in. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting for us. That you are going to become like a cypress tree. That you're going to be 400 feet tall. That you're going to be powerful. That you're going to be strong. That you'll be able to sway in the wind because you are in a community. This promise of God is also an invitation to live in the community that's going to support you. Cypress tree can live outside of the grove. It's not going to get very tall. But if you live inside of the grove, you're going to get taller. You're going to be stronger. And you're going to be much more resistant to the world and much more resistant to the elements. To be quite honest with you, I think the word grove is a better word for the church than the word church. I'm not sacrilegious. The word church is okay. The original Greek meaning, ekklesia, I think the word grove is actually better, is actually kind of helps us understand more what a church is about. I think the word grove really helps understand what is the purpose of a church. What is the purpose of this community? It's not always that you have to have all the instant chemistry, but you're with a group of people that your roots are being intermingled together so you become stronger. That doesn't mean we're only in one grove, our trees and our groves. Some of our groves reach out to, to Crossroad Church down the road street. Some of our roots go out to Calvary Church. A lot of us have roots that are connected to people outside of this grove, but the truth is we are in intentional Christian community for the purpose of becoming more and more like Jesus. Amen. That's what community is about. And that's why I want to take communion today, to say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm all in on what you have for me. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not really sure where you're going to lead me. But I want to once again say, I'm all in. And God, I trust that you're going to give me the strength and the grace to jump in that lake and get to the other side. So if you're all in today and you're all in at home, this is a tricky part of the deal. Will you be able to open this? <laughs> yeah, I dropped mine. If you can open this, that's the hardest part of the whole task. So the first little layer comes off and you should have your little piece of bread, wafer. We're going to eat this together. And thank you that this represents the body of Jesus. And we sit here today and say, because Jesus did it, I can do it too. So let's take this and say, because Jesus did it, I can do it. And then we'll peel to get to the lower level, which is the juice. In our culture, we like to say, I'll drink to that. It was part of the Jewish culture. When they would mark a sign or a covenant, they would get together and they would have a drink together to kind of seal the deal. So I want us today to drink this as a sign of we're all in. We're jumping in and we're going to see where God's going to grow our roots. Amen. So let me bless you and to close the service. And then Greg and his team, they're going to lead us in the final song, which is so appropriate in Christ alone. So let me do the, normally I do the benediction at the end, but I, I want to do the benediction now and then have them lead us and then we can be on our way. God, I thank you for this day.
And I thank you, God, that you have created a grove for us to live in, to be in, to grow and to become healthy and to become strong. So God, we put our trust and hope and confidence in you today because, Lord, sometimes that just makes us nervous to be in a grove and to be in community. But God, you're faithful. And that's what we're going to lean into today, your faithfulness. So God, I pray for each one of us here to experience your promise in Mark 10 that you are going to put us in the community that we need to be in. That you're going to give us more than we could ever give up. More friends, more community, more relationships. And I thank you for that, God. So Lord, I'm trusting in that promise. And Lord, I pray that would manifest for each of us. And God, help us to be the community that fulfills that promise as well. So may the Lord bless each one of you. May he watch over you. May he protect you. May he give you strength. May he give you stability. May he give you peace. May he wrap you in peace. May your joy be fulfilled in your relationship with Christ. May your children and your children will be blessed. May God watch over you and protect you from every scheme of the enemy. May his angels guard you and your children and your grandchildren and your extended family and your friends. And may you be safe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.